Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Blackware Intelligence Podcast. This week, I have, first of all, uh, a co-host with me. We have Sam Schwarzinski. Sometimes I mess up Sam's last name, but he's our CFO and co-founder of Blockware, as well as a very special guest. We have Raul Paul on today. Raul, how are you doing? I'm great. Pleased to be here, Will. Let's first just start with like, what have you been up to lately, the last couple of weeks? Me, I've been on holiday, finally. First time off this hot, salty rock in 21 months. So I've been to California, but the problem is, is this crypto world means you can't take your eye off the ball for a second. So my wife keeps catching me on Twitter, figuring out what the hell's going on. But but I've been away on holiday and I'm back again. I'm now in quarantine for, for eight days. Nice. Yeah. One day feels like a, a month here in, in the crypto landscape. It's right? exhausting. <laughs> you need to be your age to survive this. I'm just knackered all the time. Yeah, totally. So my first question we can we can kind of start with is just, I think, you know, you've, you've given this case many, many times on different podcasts. So I'm trying to ask you some different questions. But for anybody who doesn't know, just kind of give high level, you know, your background briefly, and then as well as how you got into Bitcoin um, and, and what kind of led you to that. Because I think, um, you know, compared to some of the other guests we've had on, you come from a traditional finance background and, and understanding that system really well kind of led you into your Bitcoin and then eventually crypto thesis. So kind of talk us through that process. Yeah. So my background was I worked for a bunch of big investment banks um, selling to hedge funds, equity derivatives, equities and equity derivatives. I ended up at Goldman where I ran, started and ran that business in Europe. Um, and I was speaking to the world's biggest hedge funds. And I was there over an incredible macro time, which was the Asian financial crisis. Um, after that, Greenspan cut rates a couple of times, and we ignited the tech boom. And I started looking at what was going on, and we could see that it was a debt bubble blowing. And the Asian financial crisis was actually the start of it. It was the start of the same debt bubble, because Asian rates had gone down. The debt bubble had exploded. It then shifts to the Western markets. The dot-com boom was part of it. That blew up. The Fed cut rates more again. Rates keep going lower. Then what happens is the whole trend rate of growth of the United States and the rest of the world started falling. And so debt went up again because people didn't want to accept a lower rate of growth. So they just keep borrowing more money. The next one was the housing bubble. That almost takes out the entire banking system. The answer to that is cut rates to zero and then start printing money. Then we go into the European crisis, 2012. That's a sovereign debt crisis. They're all the same thing, right? They're all based on the same problem. And I think that whole problem actually is to do with demographics, but that's a topic for another day. So we end up with this gigantic debt bubble. Europe almost loses itself in this process. I'm in Spain buying tinned food and a generator because Cyprus had just taken all money out of bank accounts more than 100 grand. That just during like the, the Greek austerity measures and stuff? Yeah, it was the Greek austerity measures. That was all going on. People were rioting the streets in Spain, Greece, and everywhere. But Cyprus, they said, right, all the banks are guaranteed up to 100 grand. Anything after that, we're going to confiscate. It was the first bail-in. When I saw the bail-in, I'm like, oh, shit. So now you're going to socialize the losses amongst bank account holders, your savings. So I started thinking, okay, we need to do something about it. Because also the other thing I discovered in that process is if any one of these European sovereigns of any real size, i.e. Spain, France, well, Germany wasn't under stress, but really it was going to be Spain, Spain, France, or Italy. If one of those went, the whole system would have ended. That's why they didn't let it happen. That was drag, dra uh, draggy's, you know, whatever it takes moment. 
So I start looking around the world to build the world's safest bank. I think we need to do something where there's no leverage involved, where we can protect savings. That was more difficult than I thought. <laughs> Trying to start, start a bank is not easy. And I did it with some pretty serious people, um, but we couldn't get there. And during that process, a friend of mine called Emil Woods, um, who ended up starting Luca, also um, Paxos and Liberty City Ventures, all of that, ex-Goldman guy, hedge fund guy, said, listen, have you looked at Bitcoin? So that was 2012. I started looking at Bitcoin. I wrote probably the first macro piece about Bitcoin back in 2013, early 2013. I said, you know, I think this is the answer to the financial system. I think we can have recorded ownership of all assets, you know, the whole tokenization thing. I was very quick to see where this could go. But um, I just thought that it looked a lot like gold. So I just did the back of the envelope maths, not as good as plan B can do maths, but I just figured it out and said, well, with gold at $1,300, if we look at the same kind of stock to flow idea, Bitcoin's worth a million. Um, and so I put it in a macro framework and realized what the opportunity was. So I, I was investing from 2013 onwards in the space. So that's kind of my, my whole Bitcoin story. Awesome. And then, so going from Bitcoin now to, I think, you know, you're pretty wide, uh, widely known on Twitter and, and also you guys focus in Real Vision a lot on, on DeFi. How did you kind of make that transition? When did you realize that, um, you know, some of these things could coexist? Um, and then as well, kind of talk us through your thesis in terms of, do you, see, do you see DeFi being additive to Bitcoin? Do you see some of these protocols competing with Bitcoin? Um, and, and then, you know, just, just walk us kind of just through that process. So because my background was finance, I knew that the securities lending industry, the derivative industry, everything was going to go on blockchain. That was absolutely clear the moment I saw it. The moment Emil, Emil um, explained blockchain to me, I knew where it was going. Um, and that's not trying to brag. It's just that, that that's finance, right? We just kind of knew the plumbing because we'd all had to become plumbing experts in 2008. So DeFi wasn't a surprise. It just suddenly came out of nowhere. And what was interesting is how fast it grew. Now, DeFi is still pretty unapproachable, even to somebody like me. You just don't know what risk you're taking. You don't know, you know, which one of the algorithms is going to succeed or fail. It's mass experimentation. It's really exciting. It's incredible. And it's really needed because if you remember what I was talking about in March and April and May 2020 was we need a yield curve for crypto, right? We need to have a long-term interest rate to allow us to store our money and be able to price everything off it. And it didn't have one. Then DeFi comes and we get one. It's mainly still in the shorter term, but staking is actually done longer term for different chains. So... It was a shock how fast it's come. It's still not fully developed. We're still developing only certain parts of it. You know, we haven't even really got to the insurance industry, and that's coming onto this too. So how do I think about this and Bitcoin is, for me, Bitcoin has the highest probability of being the base layer of value. Value is probably the wrong word. Money. I the think monetary premium. Word. Yeah, a, and I think that it, people get so confused over all of this. They think everything's in competition. They're not. Everything is accretive to a space that's going up 200x from here. And there's plenty of room for everybody. And all of these will go up in value. 
No, some won't because some are not going to get traction. But generally speaking, people say, well, there's all these ETH competitors like Solana. Great. They're all going to go up in value. Will ETH be as dominant as it is today? No. Will Bitcoin be as dominant as it is today? No. Will Bitcoin be challenged in its role? Highly unlikely. Will ETH be fully challenged? Don't know. Possible because it's a more open platform. So they're so different. And DeFi is a part of this. Bitcoin has been really slow in the DeFi evolution. But of course, if it's a base asset, it'll be built on in the way that we understand it to be. The Bitcoin blockchain is highly unlikely to be used for the settlement and custody of securities. Just it's, it's not an effective use of that blockchain. But to have it as the store of value, savings, whatever you think about, and then to build DeFi on top of that, if I want to have my, my Bitcoin that I want to hold for 10 years, I'd love to get a yield on that for 10 years in a way that is secure and understandable. We haven't just haven't got there yet with Bitcoin. You know, we're kind of getting yield from getting it from BlockFi or somebody else, but that's involving us in another set of risks. So I don't think it's solved yet, but it'll come soon and it'll only help the Bitcoin ecosystem when it does, because it's really important for these institutions to have yield, not just price. Gold has always been kind of pushed to the side by institutions because there's no yield. So how important is it? Do you, I, I totally understand and, and agree with that. But how important is it, do you think, for these traditional finance for that yield to be Bitcoin native versus on something like an Ether or a wrapped Bitcoin or you know any number? I don't think they care. The problem is, is right now, it's complicated to do. You know, totally. we, just, I, we just need to make it less complicated and understandable. You know, you need like an app that says there's three layers of risk here. Risky, 20% yield, sort of risky, 8% yield, not risky at all, 3% yield. You know, idiot proof, because right now it's it's too complex. But they, they will get there. I mean, people are hiring, but still it's difficult for a pension fund who needs yields to get their heads around all these DeFi protocols and what's the right well, They can't even it. get their heads around custody yet, yet alone the you know interaction with a, with a ledger and any of these, whether it's DEXs or anything else. It's... That's right. It's but we've seen there. them get into Bitcoin and yep. ETH now. So they get it. ETH staking is probably easier for them to, to get across the line. Um, but it's just a matter of time before they start moving into the yield markets in, in huge size. Can you kind of talk us through, I think uh, a lot of our audience is probably, you know, Bitcoin based, uh, probably have a lot of Bitcoin maximalists listening and, um, you know, aren't, you know, relatively, you know, uh, you know, familiar with with DeFi whatsoever. So, can you just kind of talk us through how you know Ethereum competes with you know we're talking about like Solana, Luna, uh, Avalanche, some of these other protocols. How do you how do you kind of see those um, a competing with each other, or do they do they compete with each other or not? And then you know how could you see them you know coexisting with each other as well? Like what yeah. I guess what I'm asking is like what are the what are the competitive advantages that Ethereum has versus these other protocols? Yeah. We need to think of it differently. In the traditional securities world, it's really straightforward. There's US treasuries. Let's call Bitcoin that, the safest of all assets. Then what is the next safest? European government bonds, maybe? Okay, fine. Let's call that Ethereum. Well, then there's, okay, what are these other ones that kind of look like Ethereum, 
but a faster or better, I may give you different features and benefits, but a riskier. Well, that could be Italian government bonds, or it could be something else. All you're doing is moving out of the risk curve and you're having trade-offs. Bitcoin's trade-off is security, is, is paramount, and its trade-off is speed. Now with others, Ethereum had the smart contract, which was its killer app, but it's now got, it's, it's a victim of its own success. So costs are rising and it's not as fast as some of the applications need to be. So then Solana comes along or, um, or Luna, and they're all trading off centralization, decentralization, speed and cost. And that is very normal, much like when we buy a car. We'll trade off those things. What do we want to pay for? What can we afford to pay for? What features and benefits do we want? So again, it's just not a zero-sum world. There is no, it, the whole pie is growing. So what you're doing is just wedging more parts of the pie in there as new high-quality protocols launch. And it's only attracting more people because right now the securities industry can't use the Bitcoin blockchain and they can't really use Ethereum. Could they use a layer two? Maybe not really suitable. So they're waiting for what is the what is the blockchain that works for them? Will it be one of these? I don't know. But, but so as soon as you start solving different problems with different blockchains, you bring in more and more people into the space. You know, I was just having a conversation with uh, Koi Sheffield from Visa. You know how they're approaching the space. What blockchains work for them? It's different than what works for somebody who just wants to store an asset, like. Bitcoin. So that they're, they're just all really different things that solve uniquely different problems. And a bunch of them will never get network effects because they don't solve a problem. It's the same as any other startup. Um, you know, I, I just think of it as that. And, you know, aside from like kind of looking at these protocols and the kind of a long-term thesis perspective, when we're just talking about capital rotation or, or capital flows in a bull market, can you kind of talk us through what your current positioning is, maybe not necessarily specific uh, tokens or, or positions that you hold, but just in general, how you kind of think through that, that process of, so, you know, the risk curve, et cetera. Yeah. So the easiest way to describe it in traditional terms is when you are in a credit bull market, I, the business cycle is expanding. Everything's okay. You own as little us treasuries as possible. And you own as much junk bonds and all the stuff that gives you high yields and goes up in price. As the cycle ends, you tend to go back towards the asset that is less volatile, which would be US treasuries. So where are we now? We're in the absolute guts of the bull market, as you keep pointing out, Will, right? So you can basically own anything, literally anything, Shiba, anything, and make money. Which one of these really have network effects? Which ones really have value? Well, that we're going to have to distinguish over time. Some of them, it's clear, right? Uh, others, less clear. So at this point, I'm at maximum risk-taking. Now, I don't know enough to really want to go down the, you know, the, the kind of really speculative end of the token market because I just don't know enough about it. So I'm just picking blindly. So what I did is I took a basket of stuff to say, right, you know, that whole bulk of alts, is going to do well. Now, what's happened is it started with DeFi, then it's moved to these layer twos. Um, and layer twos, do you mean like scaling, interoperability? 
sorry, layer layer ones, layer ones, and then the layer twos haven't done as well. I don't think Um, might be from smaller ones, but I'm talking the kind of larger mid cap stuff. You know, the the layer one Solana and stuff like that did astonishingly well, and I think the Binance chain was the the one that started that whole thing off, and everybody started realizing it was going to move. And then I've got kind of macro strategic bets because I think social tokens and the metaverse. So I'd been in those bets all year and suddenly the metaverse bet pays off suddenly. But it's a random game to try and chase, you know, what's going to be the next coin that goes up. So I'm not trying to play that game. I just knew that the whole space was going to go up. I wanted broad exposure and I had a couple of macro bets. And then I had the Ethereum and Bitcoin bet. Um, and at this point in the cycle, if you think, if you're an investor and not approaching it from the philosophical point of view of Bitcoin, but from an investment point of view, you want to own less Bitcoin at this point in the cycle. It's always worked to own less Bitcoin, and that's fine. People seem to take that as like some huge judgment against Bitcoin. Or no, I'm I'm trying to make money. <laughs> simple, <laughs> simple as that. Sure. sure exactly. Like I, I saw a video uh, that was circulating yesterday, and and someone was basically bashing you for for saying what you just said. And I think what people are missing is not that you're fundamentally saying that, you know, whatever X protocol is is a better protocol than Bitcoin per se, but it's kind of in, like you described it with with the bond market. But, you know, if you're if you're bullish on the S&P, you're not going to hold the S&P, right? If you think you're in like the secular stock market, bull market, then, you know, you're not going to you're not going to hold the S&P 500. Um, and so like when you're just no, because you want to buy at that point, you want to buy the riskier things because they're going to go up 500 percent as opposed to the S&P, which will go up 20 percent. Yeah, it's exactly that. And, and, and as well, like, you know, you're just speaking from from being purely a, a capital allocator. Right. And, and I don't think as well, you're necessarily like advocating everybody to do these things. I think we can agree that, you know, for the average person. Right. For like the average person just passively putting your income into this, you should probably just put it into Bitcoin and just buy and hold it. But, you know, for people that are looking to you know, maximize the returns and, and, you know, they understand the opportunity cost, the massive opportunity cost that there can be in this ecosystem, uh, then I think what, what you're saying makes sense. But I think people are missing that in the sense that you're not saying that Bitcoin isn't going to be at a higher price than where it is now in the next three to six months. But what you're, but you're, you're just speaking from, you know, a perspective of being a capital allocator and understanding that there's opportunity cost, especially when you're in the stage of the bull market that I think we can, we can both agree upon. Um, yes, that that's right, and you know, and that has proven out. I mean, you know, and it's it's normal. That's exactly how humans almost always allocate capital. It's the same with time. All of the things we allocate according to how comfortable we are taking the risk. Um, and so it's, you know, it's, it's really straightforward and it's not any other statement about Bitcoin or anything else. It's, um, it's just purely about, okay, what am I trying to do? I'm a crypto maximalist. I think this thing is going to consume everything. And I don't really care how it gets there because my job is not to stay in one community and say, I'm fighting to the death. It's like, no, I want this whole thing to succeed because it's incredibly democratizing. It's incredibly powerful for the world. And there's different opportunities for different people in it. And that's fine. And if you want to dip your toe in the water and you don't really understand the complexities of the space and it's super complex, go with Bitcoin. I have no issue with that. That's what my sister-in-law, I got her into because it's easy for her to understand. I mean, I don't see what's so contentious about this. I, we, we're 100% aligned there. I mean, on a technical analysis perspective, 
you just got to, I mean, at least the methodology we take is you compare everything to cross Bitcoin, right? You, if you're considering holding an alt, it, it, it better be outperforming Bitcoin. Cause even if it's going in USD up in USD terms and it's Bitcoin's outperforming it, you're losing money. That's the, to Will's point, the S and P 500, that's the safe index bet, set it and forget it. You know, 10 years from now, it's going to be orders of magnitude higher. I think if we're all of our theses are correct, but yeah. And you know, I must admit, I think the most important chart in the world right now is that ETH Bitcoin cross rate. Is that chart absolutely is a hell of a wedge pattern, and you know I would give that an eighty percent probability of breaking higher. Now, does that mean anything bad about Bitcoin? No, just means that ETH is probably going to have a larger bull run upcoming. Just means it's going to go up faster, a little faster. They're both going to go up. One's going to go up a little faster. That's right. So now and maybe you don't want to take that risk and that's fine too. I'm not saying you should. You can just stay in Bitcoin. That's okay too. You still make money. Sure. Well so, so we're talking about like the, the latter half of the bull market. How do you think about allocating capital heading into the bear market? I'm thinking a lot about this. Um, I'm actually setting up a crypto uh, fund of hedge funds that actually do this. I'm not sure with two data points that we know how this one's going to play out. What's interesting is this bull market's playing out identically, as I keep pointing out on Twitter, to past ones. I'm not sure the bear market will work the same way. Um, I'm just not sure because of the arrival of institutions and what's happening and the adoption phase that we're in. I kind of have a feeling it might feel more like this year felt, which is a series of accelerated rallies a sell-off or sideways consolidation that goes on for a longer period than another rally. And I think the whole space, and I'm just, I have no real idea, but I'm just thinking it through, is I just think that everybody expects there to be crypto winter. And when everybody expects something, it's not going to happen. It's different when everybody expects there to be a bull market because everyone allocates capital and it, it makes it reality. Self-fulfilling. But I think because of the different players involved here, I'm not sure that you can afford to take everything off the table and wait and see what happens. Um, so it's going to be a bit more complicated, I think, than we all think. And it's going to probably fuck with our minds a bit. And do you think like Bitcoin, if you were just to theorize, this kind of trades more like the S&P just slowly grinds higher, you see less volatility. I mean, when when I'm looking at like, the on-chain supply dynamics, um, you know, it, it resembles kind of behavior of, or a lot of these like reaccumulation trends, et cetera, um, that we usually see in a bear market all happened over the summer. And so it's almost like you had this mini bear phase paired with, you know, we had this rounded top and a, a very rounded bottom. It almost seems like um, the, the way the asset class is trading is a bit more institutionalized. You're seeing less uh, you know, parabolic moves up, you know, this recent all-time high breakout everyone's expecting, okay, we're going to shoot up 25% as soon as we broke all-time highs. Um, you know, all traders hopped in. We got a huge leverage shakeout to the downside because everyone was expecting that. It just seems like the, the type of actors, like you said, are, are a lot more patient in general. Yeah, I, I kind of think that. And then I put the chart of Bitcoin 2013 against Bitcoin now, and they're exactly the same pattern. So I'm like, it's a nice narrative but it seems to be following the same kind of price action. Let's see how it finishes the year. We've all got big expectations and we're either going to end up with egg on our faces and it's a slow grind higher 
and we're all going to be sitting there thinking, okay, well, what change? And your thesis will be right. Or it just melts up and we're like, okay, it seemed to have worked again. I, I don't know. It's, it's, getting, it's getting much harder. This end of year is probably the easiest phase we've got. And then after that, you know, it's like the fog comes over because I can't get a clear probability. My, the most probable outcome is I think that we have a bit of tax-related selling into year end. We have a bunch of people who say the cycle's over because everyone expects December to be the end of the cycle. And then all the institutions come in in January because they've just been given new P&Ls and balance sheets, the hedge funds, everybody else, you know, and re-add risk and new allocations. And that creates yet another upcycle that nobody's expecting. It's kind of what I think, but who knows? Mm. I think that's definitely the, I mean, that's the, well, now the contrarian view, but I, it seems to be more and more likely to me as, as well. And well, people are just starting hell- to get onto the having, the having based supply shock and like, you know, the, you know, every four years, Bitcoin making cyclical markets cool again. And now that everyone's onto it, you know, that here comes the rug pull and I could, I could totally see a blow the top off on, you know, cross crypto assets, at least the serious yeah. ones. And also Sam, you know, um, you run capital and you know what happens in January, everyone gets their PL reset to zero. What are you going to do? If you come back in the office, it's Jan 6th or whatever date you get back, you're going to have to put money to work. Exactly. And every hedge fund is going to do the same. And we see this in financial markets always. You get this January, I call it the January effect, but it usually drags on to Jan, Feb, and then you get a reversal. Sometimes it goes to March, but all of the key themes, everyone goes, right, this is the theme for the year. They pile on the risk <laughs> and everyone gets washed out later on. That kind of feels like. Especially in, in, I feel like a, a year when a lot of hedge funds have underperformed, right? They had great 2020s. A lot of people, you know, bought the falling knife as soon as the Fed pulled out the bazooka in March. And then they, you know, they traded kind of timidly this year and didn't capitalize on the melt up. And to your point, now they got fresh PLs and, you know, Bitcoin is looking as good, and crypto and Ether and other broader tokens are looking as good as ever. It could, you know, I, it, that same effect you just described could be exacerbated by, by the way 2021 has played out relative to 2020. Yeah, yeah, I think so. All right, Rob, you know, we're talking about institutions. What do you think the biggest hurdle is for these guys coming in? I know you talked to a lot of them. Um, what do you think the, the main thing is, is that's holding them back from, from coming into the space? Is it custodial? Is it regulatory? Is it just they just feel like it's foreign, so they just don't want to even touch it? Or I don't see many hurdles left. You know, everyone's done a lot of work. We've all done a lot of work. All of us have tried to help as many people as possible. Um, I think it's time. You know, I think that many people will have made the decision this year and will start next year. I think, you know, just speak to Fidelity and Coinbase. I mean, they're all onboarding, onboarding, onboarding. Have these people all put their money to work yet? No, but it'll be ongoing. Um, you know, so I think it's happening. I don't see any obstacles. What was really interesting is, you know, I, I'm, I, I don't know how many, 50, you know, investment banks and asset management firms and presenting about Bitcoin. And then I started getting ones just about Ethereum, which was fascinating. I hadn't seen that before. Um, as people are broadening out in, okay, what else can we do in the space? The other, the other constraint, the real constraint is um, human capital. 
it's not enough people who will go and work for an investment bank and trade crypto. So they're having to retool FX people. No, no disrespect, Sam, but they're having to retool <laughs> FX people or rates people and get them into crypto and get them to build businesses because nobody can hire enough people. This space is growing so fast. I don't know what the space is up this year, probably 4X. So this, the whole space is up 4X, but the number of people able to navigate the space is not up anything remotely like that. So you've always got this gap of people. So I think that's the biggest problem of all. Like, um, you know, some friends of mine run some absolutely enormous hedge funds and they're trying to build a platform out for crypto traders. Can't get any. <laughs> Just can't get any because people are making enough money on their own with a small amount of capital. It will change over time, but that that's the biggest constraint I would say is people now. How much do you think we see, like, there's always going to, I know a lot of, you know, both Bitcoin maximalists and just crypto maximalists, you know, think this is ultimately going to lead to the decentralization and de ultimately disintermediation of every of every financial service, you know, it becomes DeFi. I'm not of that opinion. I think people are always going to want some level of third party responsibility because God forbid something goes wrong, they're going to want someone to blame. Um, like, where do you see that, you know? The middle of that Venn diagram come in terms of integration of legacy systems, you know, trading methodologies and this new. I, I think I think the big thing is the central bank digital currency. What that is is the legacy world saying, "Okay, yep, we get it. We're moving to your world." Like that's the biggest victory. That's providing on ramp biggest off Trojan horse, biggest Trojan horse for Bitcoin and crypto adoption. I think potential. Of course, it is. It's amazing <laughs> for it, right? It's fantastic. But that's the. The legacy world saying, you're right. You guys saw this. You're right. We're going to build around you. So our world now integrates with yours. That's what they're doing. Make no mistake. So it's a really powerful thing. And so institutions get it as well. I think, broadly speaking, all the mid-smaller tier banks, unless they have a hyper-specialty like agricultural lending, are gone. The investment banks are far too smart and have known where this is going for a long time and they will build around it. The securities industry, you know, custody and all of that, that'll all go on blockchain, a lot of legal stuff, insurance stuff. It's all coming. And the central bank digital currency is actually the glue that makes it work. Oh, it's actually the oil that makes it work. It allows everything to flow around this ecosystem without the problems that it currently has of the clunkiness of one chain versus the other and everything else. And then that interoperability layer will just allow, you're never going to know. In three years time, if I send you a dollar instantaneously over my phone, you will not know or care what blockchain it was on. Exactly. Right now, we think it's a big deal. Oh, it came on the you know Lightning Network or it came on the whatever payments. Nobody cares. I just want to send you a dollar and you want to receive it. Venmo, quick pay, direct deposit, doesn't matter. You know what I mean? It's, it, and I they, will totally all, they will all use this technology because it's faster and cheaper. So you'll still exactly. use Venmo, but it may have gone via CBDC rails or it might have gone via USDC rails or it might have gone through something else. Exactly. Lightning, you know, who knows? Raul, if you were to go into a coma for 10, 15 years, where do you kind of see the state of uh, crypto, Bitcoin, um, in relation specifically to the legacy finance system. So if you, you know, you woke up 10, 15 years later, how do you kind of, you know, envision this when you close your eyes and kind of think through how this is all structured? It's going to be much larger than the existing system. 
because it's so much more than just finance. You know, this is the this is the culture as an investment. You know, people haven't got their heads around how big this NFT and social tokens thing. I keep bleating on about it. It's much bigger than anybody yet understands. So I just think this layer, this whole digital asset space, if we go 15 years, is probably 300 plus trillion, maybe even 500 trillion. Sounds a ridiculous number, but it's not because the equities business is 200 trillion. Well, how much is that's going to be on, on blockchain? All of it. The bond industry, how much of that's going to be in blockchain? Well, the Europeans are already testing it. France have been testing it, and the um, European Central, uh, not the European Central Bank, whichever one it is, have been testing it. So all bonds are going to be on blockchain. My guess is by that time, we'll start to be putting property on blockchain. So blockchain is not like an asset anymore. It is everything. It's the nature of disruption too, right? You don't disrupt an existing legacy market and just match its size. It's typically orders of magnitude larger. And if we're disrupting legacy, everything from financial, financials, insurance, everything you just related, the aggregate of all those, the, the end result of that disruption should be orders of magnitude well, larger I mean, aggregate that's market a cap. Great point you raise. How much bigger is the internet than the legacy telephone business? How much bigger, bigger was the mobile industry versus the legacy? They're all bigger than each other because they all layer on top of each other and create network effects. Exactly. Um, and, so new, and new industries we don't even expect, right? Like, like look what the car did for oil, gas, infrastructure, roads, everything in between. It's, yeah. And, and, and that frustrates me in the space that people just want to think it's one thing. And I just think it's everything. Once you open your mind to the embarrassment of riches this total disruption of basically all business models is, this is the biggest opportunity anybody's ever gonna be given in their entire lives. And what we're doing right now is fighting over small parts of it. And it's, it just drives me so crazy when the opportunity for everybody is enormous. What do you think about this whole metaverse thing? I feel like this is a big buzzword right now. It's really foreign to me. I don't know what the hell people are talking about. Can you just at least kind of just give us a high level of what this even means and, and how you kind of envision this whole so metaverse thing? Think of it as the ongoing digitization of everything. So, Will, if we'd have done this three years ago, we'd have had to be in a studio together, right? And we would have had cameras. And then we could have used mobile phones. And then we go on to Zoom. So now we are in three different places in different countries. We're doing this digitally. And it's now normal. Feels like we're in person, right? I would say that I met you. I wouldn't say, oh, I saw a digital representation of Will. I've met Will. So this is the movement towards that. This whole digitization of money is the movement towards this. It is the digital society where we move fluidly between the physical world and the digital world. You can't yet see it coming because you. it's happening everywhere. What Facebook announced is something I was following a long time in advance saying, they're going down this route. But that's just one part of it. Apple are building out AR on their phones where you will just be able to move stuff around, you'll see your phone, and there'll be all sorts of representations of the world that we live in. This blend between the digital and physical world, this is not a game. This is not one player, you know, it's not ready player one where there's one world. 
This is the logical conclusion of what is happening at lightning pace right now, which is the digitization of everything. So it is a really, really interesting thing. What's really interesting about crypto in all of this is that the, the outcome of the digitization of everything is everything is free. <laughs> digitization drives everything to zero. So here we are on this Zoom thing. How much would, should we be paying for this? Well, probably quite a lot of money because look at what it's doing. It costs us fuck all. It's incredible. Now, I think we're going to digitize energy, which is by using renewable resources, I think we drive the energy cost down to zero. Imagine a world of that. We can't get our heads around it. Crypto did one thing, is put the brakes on and said, some areas we can create scarcity in digital world. Now, that's really clever. Because without it, everything goes to zero. But with scarcity in crypto and NFTs in particular, um, it, it creates things that hold their, retain their value in this digital world of massive deflationary pressure. So it's, it's huge what is coming. Um, and crypto is the, it's just a game until you get crypto and then it becomes an economy. And we're creating economies. We're creating economies around communities. We're creating communities around games, which are communities. We're creating digital sovereign states. It's, and it's all happening at a speed that none of us can comprehend. At all, yeah. And it's new incentive mechanisms that, you know, that accelerate these naturally very fast network effects as it is, right? We got, oh man, yeah. everything. Yeah. To your point, like it, you know, it, these incentive mechanisms, you know, turn what was just like the creator economy, you know, whether it's Instagram, whatever, into a more two-way value flow. Like even just the data consumer, the content consumers, the data providers that are getting, you know, pillaged for their data. They're not making a cent of it. At least they'll be, you know, they'll, they'll either be able to opt out of those type of privacy infringements or they'll be able to be getting compensated for it or, or vice versa. It's, you know very exciting every aspect you look at you can see how it, it would benefit from these type of this type of decentralization and incentive mechanisms yeah and it, it allows us to you can see the world is fragmenting and polarizing digitally it allows you to live in different societies and move around and if a society you don't like you get to just sell your tokens and move somewhere else i mean it's you get some freedoms back um and we we don't know how this is all going to go, but because it's distributed in nature, it's going to just adapt and morph to what we want. It's just, it's, it's an extraordinary thing to see. And uh, we've never seen anything like this. And I just think of why I use the metaverse is none of us know what that is, what it's going to be, but it gives me a macro perspective of where we're going which is why I think of this whole space and like, okay, this whole space is all headed to here. And if I add in technology, AI, all of the stuff going on, it's all part of the same thing. I mean, we know in the metaverse now, essentially you can have an operation by a robot driven by a doctor in Hyderabad. That's the metaverse too. It's just a different way of expressing it. Mm. Well, this is a question we ask everybody who comes on the show. Everybody seems to have a different answer. So when we kind of think through this process of uh, Bitcoin specifically, when we're thinking about, we love this term hyper-Bitcoinization, right? Everyone talks about this. What are some of the milestones that you kind of 
uh, theorize that that will really kind of accelerate that process moving forward. So for me personally, I always say the same too. It's it's a you know nation state adoption. So we have like El Salvador, which is awesome. I think it's kind of the the first domino. Uh, and then second of all, I think uh, the politicalization of Bitcoin will be really important. Um, and then you know like the the embedment of of Bitcoin into into just broader culture as, as well. So what what are some of those milestones that that you kind of envision? And just to kind of, to, to, before you start, because I'm really excited to hear your answer, do you see Bitcoin displacing the U.S. dollar as the global, like, quote, currency in general or in, in the yeah. hyper-Bitcoinization bucket? Um, the answer is, the answer to this is nobody knows and anybody who thinks they do is lying. Is there a probability of it? Yes. But you've got to get however many countries there are in the world, 190 countries or whatever it is, all to adopt it and concede power when they have guns? I don't know. I'm not adverse to the idea. I can hold the two ideas in my head that we can have hyper-Bitcoinization or we don't. We have a digital currency world. We get the gift of Bitcoin for us to use as an independent money system. I get that too. And I don't have a problem not knowing the answer and I don't need to, to ascribe to an answer. And the answer is really simple, network adoption. There is only one thing you need to know. Is Bitcoin being adopted and at what rate? And when does it get to saturation point that everybody in the world owns it? And then it's the number of use cases that it has. It's, you know, people can pontificate all day about their philosophy on why it should be and why they believe in what they believe. It all comes down to the network. Is it adopted or not? And right now, seems to be doing just fine. You know, will we get to 7 billion people in 20 years? I don't know, but it kind of looks like it might. Does it become, therefore, used as a transactional store of value layer by everybody in the world all the time? Probability is less because there are other things. Like, if that were the case, then why was gold not always the store of value in the base layer of money? Because politics and nation states and other things um so i don't know i'm open to it um i I get the argument and i think it's a i think it's a robust real argument we've just never seen anything like it before so we just don't know none of us were around when we adopted gold Uh, to will's point what 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 if developments could happen that you would see pointing to an increased probability of something like that happening other than the just broader, you know, fundamental network growth. Well, fundamental network growth incorporates all of that, right? So any That's nation exactly, state, yeah. then you get it, right? So it's cheating as an answer, right? Um, <laughs> so just, hey, work smarter, not harder. So that's kind of the whole point, right? <laughs> um, the answer is like, I think the first one is going to be sovereign wealth funds and putting it on their balance sheets. I, I think that's, that's the key step we're still missing. I know that Singapore and a few others have got it. I know that some of the Middle East are looking at it and got it. It's still not big enough and liquid enough um, for most of them. Um, but I think that's the key thing because then you've got state acceptance that it is what it says it is, which is a store of value um, that has different risk reward profiles than other stores of value. I. I've always called it a store of value 
with a call option on the future, right? That's an incredibly attractive asset to own. Now, the problem is it still goes down, it still can go down 70%. So it doesn't look like most other stores of value. So it's, it's a store of value with volatility, which is kind of a bit odd. Um, so th they struggle to get that, but they think of it as the technology. Um, so I, I, that's for me, the single most important thing. Once Singapore adds it, China adds it to its reserves, you know, these countries that run large reserves, you know, Europe doesn't need to, the US doesn't need to, they don't run reserves of other nations really. But, um, but if you Switzerland. see Switzerland, uh, yeah, Switzerland, their problem is, is they've got too strong a currency. So they keep trying to debase their currency. So it's less likely to happen for them, but China, Japan, um, Singapore, Middle East, these who, who recycle these surpluses. It's very useful for the Middle East because they get this weird world where oil price is cyclical. They make a ton of money, then they make no money, and then they start, they've, got, they've accumulated a bunch of debts which they can't service because they're in dollars. So they have this big problem with the dollar and the big problem with um, oil. Bitcoin actually helps them offset that on their balance sheets of this. Of this. Um, Norway is another one who'd be interesting. So I, and I think that's going to come without question. And that's the big marker. I don't think El Salvador was the marker. Of course, Ener it's, a, it's a stepping stone. But. Energy getting priced in Bitcoin, I feel, feel like is, a, is another major one as well. Would you agree? Nobody's going to price energy in Bitcoin because nobody owns enough Bitcoin. It's just not going to happen. Hmm. You, can't, you can't do it. What, what do you do? Price oil in Bitcoin? suddenly you have to buy trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars of Bitcoin to even meet your obligations for your pay payments. So it's, it's not going to happen. Can it happen once it's become hyper-owned by everybody? Sure. But even the Chinese can barely get people to, to buy and sell crude oil and other commodities in Yuan or RMB. It, it's difficult because people don't own it. Out of it that way. That's interesting. Well, I just want to give you the give you the floor to just plug in your. I know everyone knows Real Vision, but if you want to plug in anything specific, if you have any you know final comments you want to get off your chest before we go ahead and wrap up, this has been yeah. an absolute pleasure. Yeah, no, I've really enjoyed this, and it's given me an opportunity to explain some of my thinking properly. Um, I believe passionately in this space. I really care about it. I think it's the biggest opportunity, and. That's why we created Real Vision Crypto, which is free, you know, because Real Vision is behind a paywall and it's all about finance and the finance part of it is really important. If you hear me speak, I talk about macro because that's how I think of the world and that's what led me to this. But Real Vision Crypto is free and anybody watching this, it's a resource. Now, you may be a Bitcoin maximalist, there's content for you. You may be a crypto, crypto maximalist, there's content for you. You may be somebody who loves NFTs, there's content for you. The point being is we're trying to create the world's best resource for people to learn from the best people in the space, their different perspectives. And if we can offer each other different perspectives, then we all win. So just awesome. go to realvisioncrypto.com, yeah. sign up, it's free.
So I think that's a, that's a great place to wrap up. Uh, and like I said, you know, this has been an awesome conversation. I think we should have more of these open dialogues between especially people who are kind of Bitcoin centric as well as people who aren't. And, you know, I, I personally learned a lot. A lot of this stuff, honestly, is just foreign to me. So I'm trying to put the pieces together and, and you kind of helped me do that today. So thank you so much, Ralph, for coming on. Uh, we really appreciate you taking the time and uh, hopefully we can get you on, you know, sometime soon later, uh, later down the road. Love to. Yeah, Look, really enjoyed it, guys. Yeah. Thank you, Sam. Thank you. Well, really enjoyed it. Awesome. Thank you. Take care. Take care. You too.